Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This evening's reading is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 23, and can be found on page 1180 of the Church Bibles. That's page 1180 of the Church Bibles. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Sintyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty." I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thank you very much for the reading, Sam, and well done with those names. Um, Just in case you are new tonight, um, you might not know me. My name's Rob. I'm on the staff team here. Let me add my welcome to Matt's. It's great to have you with us. And if you are new, again, as Matt said, you've you've come right at the end of a letter, um, which is not the easiest night to turn up. But you can find all the talks that have built up to tonight online if anything tonight strikes you as interesting or you want to follow up on anything or get some context. 
uh, you can always just come and grab me afterwards as well. And I'd love to talk to you about anything uh, you've not understood. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I often end up in um, rabbit holes in the internet uh, as I surf when I should be doing better things. And I once came across this guy called Fred Pryor from the States who was selling peace, 120 pounds for three hours on managing emotions under pressure. Uh, Would you pay that, I wonder? Well, listen to this um, hard sell from Fred. Does your temper ever get you into trouble? Do you sometimes rub people up the wrong way? Be honest. What's the price you pay? How far could your career go if you eliminated one or two counterproductive behaviors? How much time and energy do you spend feeling anxious? Where has that gotten you? After my seminar, he's American, by the way, so you've got to imagine American accent. I'm not going to... Um, ruin it for you with my American accent. After this seminar, you'll have fewer conflicts in your life because people won't be able to push your buttons anymore. You'll get more done with less effort because you'll have greater mental clarity. You'll enjoy life more. It's It's not a bad sell, is it? And I think Fred's onto something. Having a peaceful heart and mind, well, it is very precious. I'd say it's worth more than 120 pounds. But I also want to say that I think the Apostle Paul, this leader of the early church in the first century, has better lessons to teach us about how to get peace than Fred Pryor did. I mean, throughout the letter, we've seen Paul keep his head when he was in prison, facing the death penalty, after being stabbed in the back by Christians who should have been supporting him in chapter 1. We saw him keep his head when his friend Epaphroditus almost died. That's a lot, isn't it? There is a lot going on for Paul, but he knows how to manage his emotions. How? Well, Paul has a very simple message today. It's not very simple to put into practice and actually do, but it's very simple to understand. He says this, rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ to find peace and contentment. We're going to begin with the first of those in uh, verses 2 to 9. Those little numbers 2 to 9 in the fourth chapter of this letter. Rejoice in Christ to find peace. Rejoice in Christ to find peace. Now, before we dive into this, we've got to confess, I think, that when it comes to peace, uh, we Christians don't always have the best record, do we? In fact, we've got a remarkable knack for falling out with one another. I hope you still feel that very keenly if you're a member of the church family here and have been over the last decade. But look, if we can't keep peace in-house, as it were, then what do we actually know about peace? Interestingly, in this chapter that has so much to say about peace, Paul begins with an incident where there are two Christians not at peace. In verse 2, did you see? Euodia and Syntyche, or whatever you, however you say her name. (laughs) These women who, uh, according to verse 3, and the verse 3, have contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of his co-workers. These women have worked together for Christ's gospel. They have this shared history, this shared mission. What on earth could have made them fall out? Well, Paul doesn't actually tell us. He just urges first Euodia, then urges second Syntyche. Notice urging each of them personally 
to end of verse 2, to have the same mind in the Lord? Whatever else you disagree on, my friends, won't you agree in him, says Paul? Have you forgotten your shared experience of the grace of Christ? End of verse 3. Both your names are in the book of life. That is on the roll call of the kingdom of heaven. Because the king of heaven died that you might live. Isn't that enough to unite you? Says Paul. It's interesting, isn't it? That there's so much to say about what unites them. That their disagreement doesn't seem to be worth mentioning. Notice then this... Whatever it is that's making them disagree, it can't be like the false teaching that we saw in chapter 3, can it? Paul does still think some things are right and wrong, and some things are worth disagreeing over, and some things worth contending against and denouncing. But this disagreement must be about something not like that, but something second order, something non-essential. What Bible translation do you prefer? NIV? ESV, or if you're a true Christian, KJV. Ancient hymns or modern songs? Expository sermons or systematic ones? Male headship or male and female headship? Which is it? And is it actually worth falling out over? Get some perspective, says Paul. And whatever else you disagree on, agree on Christ. More than intellectual agreement, though, when Paul says mind here, have the same mind, he means have the same value, love him, have the same attitude towards him. I mean, he goes on in verse 4, doesn't he, to say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. It's hard to be at war with someone when you and they enjoy the same things. Do you think any of the Liverpool supporters, who maybe were a bit annoyed with each other before the match, currently find it hard to get on with each other? If you don't know the score, I won't completely ruin it for you. But as a Man U supporter, I'm, um, well, I'm not going to tell you. It's just too painful. Um, or, or, I don't know, could you, imagine a, could you imagine anybody being happy with a family member and another family member who are at war with one another when a member of the family was getting married and it should be an occasion for joy and they should just have the same mind on this occasion that this is a, a joyful occasion. Why can't you just put your disagreement to one side, says Paul. Isn't Jesus enough of a cause for joy for you? To get on? Look, please don't be naive. Christians do fall out with one another, don't we? In some ways, being a fruitful church where many of us partner in gospel work together makes it more likely that we're going to have fallouts. You can't elbow each other in the ribs unless you're standing side by side together Working together for the gospel, can you? But please also don't be naive about how disputes get solved either. These women needed help. First from Paul and then from Paul's chosen mediator, Sisygus. Um, I think he's called Loyal Yoke Fellow here, isn't he? He or she. I'm not sure whether it's he or she. Notice that Paul chose this person to help them out. Um, in verse 3. Oh, actually, in fact, in my translation here, it's, it's translated, yes, and I ask you, my true companion. Um, the literal uh, word there for com- true companion is yoke fellow. It might be a nickname, it might be his actual name, 
But either way, Paul chose this person, this mediator, to help them. So this isn't a license for anybody to wade into any church conflict and knock heads together to get them to sort it out. Mediators need great wisdom and skill. They often need to be chosen carefully. But surely in our disputes, there ought to be somebody wise enough and skillful enough in a congregation this big with Christians this long in the tooth to help one another sort out problems and rejoice together in Christ. I've heard many such people expressing regret at being too slow to get involved in the past. Maybe our particular danger isn't rushing in where um, angels fear to tread, but being too slow to intervene. Disputes happen, don't they? It can be messy to solve them. But ultimately, the solution is, in principle at least, really straightforward. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Share in Christ-centered joy, and that will keep you at peace. But actually, Paul doesn't just want the Philippian church to be at peace as a church. His goal is much bigger. He wants them to have an inner peace that guards them in every relationship and circumstance. Verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoicing in Christ as we realize how near he is to us can help us keep peace with everyone, says Paul. All people. This word, um, gentleness, it's a Greek word that usually needs about 10 English words to convey all that it means. It describes somebody who doesn't get sucked into petty arguments. Somebody who keeps a good sense of perspective on what really matters, who's big-hearted and kind to others. And Paul says that rejoicing in the Lord can make you like that. Big-hearted, reasonable, kind, a good sense of perspective, gentle. Especially because the Lord that we rejoice in is near, says Paul, end of verse 5. How does that work? Well, take a situation from the office. You're struggling with a colleague because although you hot desk at work and nobody officially has their own desk, actually everybody knows that the desk by the window with your plant on it is yours. But your colleague, you think, deliberately keeps turning up to beach towel your desk. And frankly, you think she's doing it on purpose. And boy, does it make it easy to join in the backbiting about her behind her back but stop a moment the Lord is near that is soon he will return in glory and every tongue will confess and every knee bow can't you be big hearted about a desk get some perspective especially given that your colleague isn't yet a believer doesn't know the Lord. Is it really worth injuring your chance to share your faith with her over a desk? Do you see what Paul is saying? Knowing the Lord is near can help us stay gentle with everybody, can keep us peaceful in the face of petty annoyances. In fact, he thinks it can keep you peaceful even in the face of the most antagonistic opponent of the gospel. Nobody, nothing should be able to unsettle your heart's 
and minds. End of verse 7. When we are rejoicing in Christ, the Christ who will soon return. But if you're anything like me, you'll know that doesn't always help you. I've got some house guests at the moment. And they keep using my eggs. I still lose perspective. And I get anxious and worked up about petty things all the time, don't you? But perhaps we need to remember one other way that the Lord is near. The Lord is near, end of verse 5, because, verse 6, we can pray to him. Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near, not just in time, because he's coming soon, but also in space, because he is near to all who call on him, because his spirit, which is not bound, who is not bound? by time or space, fills the universe, is always on hand to help us. I suspect my struggle to beat anxiety and petty annoyances is often because I'm slow to ask for his help. If only I would ask, then he would guard my heart and mind with impregnable peace, wouldn't he? Well, what do you think? Would he? Is the offer on, of peace really worth the paper it's written on here? I used to live in Belarus. I haven't said that for at least a few sermons, so forgive me for saying it again. But I used to live in Belarus, and I've got some friends there, a young married couple in their 20s, Andrei and Vera, who are currently in prison, awaiting trial in a couple of months now. Uh, they're going to be um, on trial for terrorism when all they did was take part in a, a peaceful protest where they were careful not even to trample on the flower beds because they are good, peaceful people, the sweetest, most innocent couple you could imagine. Their dad is actually the pastor of the church I used to work in in Minsk, the capital of Belarus. Don't be anxious about anything, says Paul in verse 6. Really? Really, Paul? Try telling that to Andrea and Vieira facing up to a decade in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Try telling that to Dima and Anya, their parents. And can't all of us testify to worries of many kinds despite our Christian faith, despite our prayers? Don't we experience anxiety all the time? You know, there are many descriptions of it in Scripture which will be familiar to you. The Psalms speak of a feeling of claustrophobia, of being stuck in a narrow space that you can't get out of, of floods overwhelming you. Sometimes the feeling is just of utter helplessness in the face of unstoppable chaos and disaster. Jesus in Luke 8, three weeks ago, when Matt was speaking in the morning, spoke of more everyday anxieties like like thorns that grow around you and gradually choke you. Whether it's panic attacks or the daily grind wearing you down, don't we all suffer anxiety all the time, even as Christians who pray? Don't be anxious about anything, really? And actually, of course, some category of anxiety is right. 
Do you remember Paul's grief at the thought that Epaphroditus might die in 2 verse 27? You see, Paul is not teaching an emotionless stoicism that hovers above the waves of any kinds of concern here. Indeed, the word for anxiety here in in 4 verse 6 is the same word used of Timothy's anxiety for others in 2 verse 20, where it's translated genuine concern for your welfare, and it's commended by Paul. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians says, I face the the daily pressure of my anxiety. Same word as here in verse 6. My anxiety for all the churches. Pressure daily. So whatever anxious about nothing means, it does not and cannot mean failing to love people to such an extent that you make yourself vulnerable to grief and concern, and pressure, and sleepless nights for their welfare. Now, anxiety born of love is absolutely right. So then there are good worries that we should not seek to remove. But of course, there are also wrong worries As gospel partners, and I hope many of you are partners in the work of the gospel in this world, we shouldn't be worrying about what everybody else worries about. The Lord himself commanded us not to do that, not to worry about clothes or food, knowing that our heavenly Father knows that we need them and will provide. Not to worry about the the length of our life, because who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? You can't. It won't help you. Stop it. And knowing Christ, Paul, Paul wasn't afraid of death anymore but only afraid, anxious that he might betray Christ in the face of death when he was on trial. So don't be anxious about anything. What does it mean? Well, I guess the thing about worries is that they are impossible to face on your own, even if they are the right worries. Isn't that the big point here? Whether you find yourself hemmed in by worries that Christ commands you to stop worrying about or by worries that Christ commends as right and good because they're born of love, either way, Paul says, won't you take them to God? Verse 5, again, the end of the verse, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So whatever worries worry you, good or bad, money, grades, inflation, tricky colleagues, prison, work pressures, the welfare of loved ones, the advance of the gospel, gospel, whether you'll keep going as a Christian, LLF, Christian friends and their struggles, non-Christian friends and their apathy to Christ, or opponents of the gospel, or the disease or death of a loved one, whatever it is, Paul is saying don't face it alone. Because Christ is on hand, he's near, and he wants to face it with you. Won't you ask him for his help? Peace is so precious, isn't it? Precious to us personally, and it's on offer. Not a peace that takes away every concern, but a peace that gives you the strength to keep walking with those concerns and anxieties and to bear up under them and not be crushed. Paul wants these Christians to have peace. 
And he wants them to have peace, not just because of the personal benefits they'll get from it, but because peace is vital to building a fruitful gospel partnership. Think about it. How can we strive with each other for Christ's gospel when we're striving against each other? How can we live all out for Christ when we're so consumed with our anxiety about the rough and tumble of life, we're just struggling to get through the day? You see, the health of our work together for Christ that Paul's been trying to promote all through this letter, it depends upon the depths of our peace. But as we've heard, our peace depends on us learning to rejoice in and treasure Christ. So how do we do that? Well, unsurprisingly, in verses 8 to 9, Paul finally turns to help us with that. How do we grow in treasuring the Lord, well, look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. To grow in treasuring Christ, we need to meditate on everything of true value and worth. Um, I don't know whether you can remember all the way back to the start of the sermon series in January, but this uh, verse is actually the counterpart to the prayer in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Uh, It's Paul asking them to actually cooperate now with that prayer. You see, back then in 9 to 11 of chapter 1, Paul prayed for their love to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. And you might not remember, but this word depth of insight is the word from which we get aesthetics, aesthesis. It's a, a one-off word used only in, in this book in the New Testament. And what are aesthetics? Well, they're the ability to appreciate what's really beautiful. But in its original context, thousands of years ago, it meant not just beauty in general, but moral beauty. Paul wanted their love to grow more and more in an ability to appreciate what is truly good and true and noble and righteous and lovely and honorable and praiseworthy, you see? And now he's saying that's not just something God gives to you, but something that you get for yourself with God's help as you think about what is truly morally beautiful, And of course, this has to begin with at least thinking about Christ, doesn't it? Not just reading the scriptures about Jesus in a mechanical way, but stopping and asking yourself, what is so good about Christ here? What is so lovely about him and noble about him? But of course, Paul doesn't just confine it to thinking about how good Christ is. He has shown us again and again that we need role models Role models like those true preachers in chapter 118 who preached Christ from love and truth, not in pretense and out of ambition. Or Epaphroditus, who was worthy of praise, honor such men, said Paul, because he risked his life for Christ in chapter 229. Or in 220, lovely Timothy, whose concern for Christ and Christians made him excellent compared to others. And of course, supremely, as we look for role models, Verse 9, let's look to Paul and learn from him. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. 
Paul's peace despite his imprisonment and impending trial and possible death penalty. His generosity to other Christians trying to stir up trouble for him, kicking him when he was down. His passion for gospel partners, his tears for enemies of the gospel, his courageous stand against the falsehoods of the circumcision party whose false teaching could undermine Christ's gospel and Christians, his servant-hearted love in all things and above all his desire for Christ. Think about these things. They are morally beautiful. They are lovely. They are noble. Think about them and put them into practice. Well, um, we're going to go a little bit long tonight. Let's see how long we got. 7.32. Actually, not too bad. I'm going to take you about another 15 minutes. So um, as we stop there at the end of our first part, the second part will be shorter, don't worry. Why don't you just maybe have a little stretch? Is that a bit awkward? If you find that kind of thing awkward, maybe, maybe don't. Um, but just take a moment. Mental brain break. I'm going to have a drink of water as my throat hurts. Okay, come back to me, come back to me. We've had a few people go to the toilet, good on you. That was the chance. (laughs) Let's rejoice in Christ to know peace. Now rejoice in Christ to know contentment. Um, I guess this probably isn't going to be the case, but has anybody here read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yeah, we've got one, yeah, one or two people. This is excellent. I can tell the children of the 70s. That's excellent. Uh, apparently, it was a very popular book in the 70s. It's the most popular phys- philosophic, I can't say it, philosophical novel that's ever been written, apparently. It's a book that's uh, basically a really long meditation all about how we are shaped by our values. And in uh, Robert Piercig's book, he talks about the South Indian monkey trap What is a South Indian monkey trap? Well, it's a hollowed out coconut with some sweet rice inside. It's chained to the ground and it has a hole just big enough for a monkey to fit its hand through, but too small for the monkey to remove once it's clenched its fist around the rice. And eventually, of course, a monkey comes along, discovers the rice, reaches inside, clutches the rice, makes a fist and finds itself trapped. Now, it's not really trapped because it just has to let go of the rice. But the problem is, it values the rice so much, it can't see how valuable its freedom is. And so the trapper comes along and traps it easily. But what's really trapping it? Robert Piercig says it's its value rigidity that's trapping it. It's got the wrong values and it can't change them. You see, we are going to find it really hard to change as Christians unless we can change our values. That's what Paul's been saying all through this letter, unless you hadn't noticed. Paul's letter finishes with a thank you to the Philippians for a financial gift they've sent him through Epaphroditus. Look at verse 18. I have received the gifts you sent through Epaphroditus. Um, They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And Paul's thank you is incredibly revealing 
about his values and he wants us to learn from them that we might be truly changed. You see, saying thank you for a financial gift should be fairly straightforward, shouldn't it? Get the camera out, a quick selfie with Epaphroditus, a handshake as the giant check is handed over, not that anybody uses those anymore, and then send the photo home with Epaphroditus and a note that simply says, thanks for the money. Could have done it in four words. But did you notice how he goes on and on and how complex it is here? Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Um, that's a little bit rude, isn't it, Paul? Finally, at last, you've sent me some money. But he quickly clarifies what he means. 10b, indeed you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. You see, the picture is of a church that's been eagerly waiting for the opportunity to give, but the opportunity just hasn't come. You see, Paul is confident that this church is just living up to its own track record in finally sending money. It's doing what they've always done and longed to do, even during those times they haven't been able to do it. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, verse 15, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Even when I was in Thessalonica, that's the next town along from Philippi. Uh, the next place he went just after he planted the church, right from the very beginning of their existence as Christians, middle of verse 16, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. The Philippians really are a church that value Christ, they got it. From the word go, they got how precious he was. And so they were able to let go of the sweet, sticky rice. Loving Christ made them willing givers. Willing givers who didn't willingly hold their money back from supporting the work of Christ's witness, messenger, and leader, Paul. They looked for opportunities to give. What does your giving show about what you value? Does it say that to you to live is Christ and to die is gain? Now I know that in the light of the amazing response to the deficit in our church budget, that many of you really do love Christ more than money. It's obvious. Now, look, especially if you're new, you might think this is just typical of churches, always rattling the tin, just a money-making operation. And if you're here for the first time, then let me assure you, we probably talk about money too little rather than too much. That's perhaps why we got into a deficit, I don't know. But what's more, we are just preaching our way through a Bible book here, and this happens to have come up at the end of the book. But aha, you might say, all that proves is that Christians have always been money-grabbing from the days of Paul to now. Well, look, it might be true of me, but Amy and I, my wife and I, we've not made much money from my church work. We've been at least one year on the poverty line because of my career choice, at least technically. And for at least five years as a minister, I've worked for churches for free. But may God have mercy on me and change me if it is true. And call me out on it if you see it, my church family. But nothing 
Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to Paul. He bends over backwards to show that his contentment in Christ has made him let go of money. He's freed from it. He's content. Verse 11. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Oh, thanks for the gift, but you know, actually, I don't need it. Again, it sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? But why don't you need it? But you do need it in one sense. He says, this has really helped me with my needs. Verse 16. But in another sense, he doesn't need it. Because he has found the secret of contentment. He's learned it, he says, in verse 12. I've learned the secret. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because in 4 verse 9, he said, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Well, now he's showing them something he's learned so that they might see it in him and learn it themselves. Do you see? He wants you to rejoice in Christ to to the extent that you find that you are content whatever your financial situation is, whether poor or rich. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Learning contentment when you're rich, what's that about? Well, it's not really weird. I guess some churches might struggle to get what's so hard about riches, but we shouldn't. Not in West Sheffield. Being rich, relatively at least, we know riches can warp our perspective on what is truly valuable and make us think that luxuries are essential. And rob us of finding true joy in the good things God has provided, inflaming our greed for more, always more. We know the danger of riches making us entitled and proud and conceited, don't we? And we of all people also know that riches simply do not bring the security and joy that some people think they do because we have had them and found them wanting. Yeah, Paul, Paul has looked at both sides, lived both sides, and he has learnt to treasure Christ through it all. Won't you learn from him? Whatever your circumstances, Paul is free from loving money, and so he is free to simply love. Verse 17, it's not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Do you remember the Lord's teaching? We shouldn't seek to store up treasures on earth, but to be rich in heavenly treasure and store up riches there. That's the account that Paul is talking about here. And because he's not that bothered about whether he's rich or poor, as he looks at these Christians giving to him, he is free to not actually be too concerned about what those financial gifts do for his bank account, but to be more delighted in what they say about the spiritual bank account of these Christians. It is just sheer joy when I see you give money because it tells me that you are growing as Christians. And that thrills my heart, says Paul. I rejoiced 
greatly. Verse 10. Valuing Christ, not money, is what will produce the fruit of righteousness with regards to money. Isn't contentment in Christ more precious than all the money in all the world? What good is all the money in all the world if it leaves you restless and joyless? Can money make you more righteous? Can it buy you eternal life? Can it teach you what is truly valuable? Does it help you love God and love others, both friends and enemies, both gospel partners and gospel opponents? Does money help you nobly give your life to Christ as he gave his life for you? Please, don't let money Make a silly monkey of you. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the teaching from the Apostle Paul all through this incredible letter to the Philippians. And how we pray that you would help us not to be unbendably rigid in the things that we value. Help us to see his value above all. And so change us, we pray. Amen.